Open your Bibles with me, if you would, to Romans chapter 4, and we're going to look at some other scriptures. We've been talking for a while now, actually both on Sunday morning and on Wednesday night, about faith, and um, the Lord showed me uh, somewhere this summer that there were many of us going through difficult situations, not just in this church, but in other churches. This is a very, can be a very difficult time. Some people are challenged financially. Some people are even in danger of losing their home. Some of the challenges that you may have may be in your family relationships. It may be in your finances. It may be at your job. Maybe all of those wrapped up because the devil doesn't play fair. He doesn't, you know, wait till you conquer one thing and then give you something else. He's trying to take you out. But he can't if you don't quit. I'm going to say that again. He can't stop you if you don't quit because you don't belong in His kingdom anymore. Colossians 1.13 says that when you came to Christ, you were transferred out of His domain, out of His area of influence, out of where He has power and authority, and you were transferred over into the kingdom of His beloved Son. Satan has no authority in the kingdom of God. The only authority He has is the authority you give Him. But He's very good at talking us into using it against ourselves. But that's why we come to Wednesday night service, so we can learn how not to do that anymore. Praise God. And so we've been learning about faith in both, in both services, a little different angle, a little different point of view. And when we finished, when I did Wednesday night the last time, which was about a month ago, we went into this section in Romans chapter 4, because I believe in here is really a breakdown of the basic principles of faith. And I want to go back over why that's important. While we were praying in the beginning of this, before the service started, it's kind of crystallized in my thinking. Most of us have some idea of what faith is, and hopefully after sitting through some of these teachings, you have a better idea of what faith is, because we've talked about what faith is and what faith isn't. But what happens so often is when you're, you can sit in Wednesday night service, you can sit in Sunday morning service, you can read a book on faith, and it's all kind of clear in your mind, but we don't operate our faith just sitting in church. And we don't operate our faith just reading a book on faith. It's out there in the real world when the circumstances of life present themselves to us. That's when we've got to reach back and pull out what we've learned and begin to apply it in that situation. It's as if you've been given a manual for how to handle every emergency that can happen. Suppose you're a pilot and you've learned to fly the plane, and they've given you on your graduation a manual of how to handle every emergency that can happen. And you've read the manual backwards and forwards. You understand where all the chapters are. You know where the index is. And you're up there flying, and your co-pilot says, well, we got a little problem. Engine number two just went out, and you've only got two engines. And he said, engine number one doesn't look too healthy. How do I know that? Well, there's flames coming out of it. And you say, I think I read that somewhere in the manual. You don't have time to go back at that point. Find the manual. Look in the index and say, what do we do when engine number two is gone and engine number three, one is in a flame out? In those situations, you've already got to have ingrained in your thinking what you're going to do. Now, life is a great trainer in faith. Peter tells us in one of the letters he writes that the trying of your faith is more precious than gold. I think we began the Sunday services study on faith with that verse. Or last year we talked about that. That the trying of your faith is more precious than gold. 
and, and, but the trying of your faith doesn't come in class. It doesn't come in church. It comes out there in life. The circumstances of life are your quiz. This is the classroom, but the exams are out there. And the way you know how strong you are in faith and how well your faith is operating by the score you get at the end of the exam. You either succeeded or you failed. Now, in the school of God, there's nothing wrong with failing as long as you don't quit. You get back up, you pull the manual back out, you ask God what you need to learn, what do I got to grow in, and you get back up there. As long as you don't quit, you graduate. It may take you a little longer than other people, but you will graduate. But what I've just set a sense of is before we end this study is to go back and do a review where I teach you how to analyze the situations that you come up against so that you can begin to use the principles of faith in those situations. Many people feel, think that faith is an emotion. So they try to decide whether they're in faith or what to do by how they feel. Because I'll have people say, I don't feel like I'm in faith. Faith and feelings, as we will learn, have nothing, absolutely nothing to do with each other. They are the opposite of each other. They're polar opposites. You cannot do anything. If you do things by your feelings, you are by definition not doing them by faith. But many people don't understand that, so they're trying to gauge whether they're in faith or not and what faith is by how they feel about it. And they may feel threatened by the circumstances and the situations. Many times you do feel threatened by the circumstances and situations because many times they're threatening. But it's what you do with that threatening that determines whether God's Word will work. God's Word always works. But whether it works for you in your life in your situation, depends on whether you operate in that word by faith or not. That's the key. So many times, Jesus, when he ministered to someone in the Gospels, said this, your faith made you whole. Not my power. It was his power, but it was their faith that drew on his power. His power was there to heal everybody, but it was those that drew on it by faith, we know that, and I don't want to spend time on this because we've talked about this before. There was one situation in Matthew, Mark chapter 5, and it's also in Matthew, where Jesus was among a crowd of people, and they were all touching him, but one woman had a different touch because she said in faith, if I just touch his garment, I shall be made whole of this issue of blood that she'd had for 12 years, and the doctors couldn't do anything of her for her. She'd spent all her money on the doctors that hadn't done any good. She was a hopeless case. But she said, if I just touch his garment, I'll be made whole. When she touched his garment, she was made whole, and he didn't even know who she was. But he stopped and said, who touched me? The disciples said, what do you mean who touched you? Many people have been touching you. But what he was saying is this touch was different. This touch was by someone that was believing that if they touched me, something was going to happen. And as a result, it activated, they received the faith, the power to heal that was in me. It was in that same power was in him to heal everybody else that touched him, but only the one. In fact, in the end of, I think it's Matthew 14, it says that they, that they, that they, they asked Jesus to come to this town because they believed that if they would just touch his garment, they'd be made whole. But the last part of that verse says, and as many as touched him were made whole. That implies that were people that believed that if they touched him, they'd be made whole, but they didn't touch him. It was only those that touched him that acted on what they believed. So we talked about that before. But in Romans chapter 4, there is an outline in here 
of the basic ingredients or elements of faith. And I want to take a moment to explain to you why I want to go through this. And again, we started this several weeks ago, but it's been a few weeks and I want to go back over this because I want you to understand why it's important to understand this. Because in many people's minds, faith is just this, it's a confusing thing. They don't know what it is and they're trying to operate in it and they have pieces of it. They may have all the pieces, but they don't have them put together. Now, back when we first got saved and started studying about faith, it was very popular to you could get different people's faith series. One had eight steps to successful faith. Somebody else had 12. Somebody had six. And, you know, and it got so popular to teach that, I just stopped listening to those because it became a formula. If you do A, then B, then C, then you're going to get A, B, C, D, E. You're going to get the next letter. You're going to get the results. You know, if you do the right things, you'll get the right... And what that very subtly did is it put my faith in me and what I was doing. And so I felt the pressure whether I did things right or not. So it, it disconnected me from God and all my faith was on whether I said the right things and read the right things and confessed the right things and did the right things and it didn't work because our faith is not supposed to be in ourselves. Our faith is supposed to be in God. So this is not a list of formula that if you do these things in the right order that you'll get your new car, you'll get your new house, you'll get whatever it is you're asking God for, whatever it is. On the other hand, we can't throw structure out. We can't throw structure out. Jesus says in, Mar- in Matthew chapter I guess 6, He says, don't use vain repetitious prayers. He doesn't say don't use repetitious prayers. Don't use vain or empty ones, meaningless ones. Because then he goes on to teach us the Lord's Prayer, which many of us pray regularly, and that's okay as long as it has meaning to you. So there's nothing wrong with order. There's nothing wrong with following a list as long as your trust is not in the list. In fact, one of the best examples of it, and I think I used this before, is this airplane pilots. And we just came, came back from this trip from Mexico. And, and the airplane pilots, before they get on the plane... To, to, before they, they, they take off, they go through a checklist. They may have put thousands of hours in that very plane. They may have been the only pilot to ever fly that particular plane and know it inside and out. But they have a checklist that they go through. Why? So that they make sure that they cover every element and they don't leave something out. And that's basically what this is. This is I'll give you another example, and I've used this in a different context. Uh, a, a couple of years ago, uh, my wife and I were in Starbucks and and in, in and I, I, I've shared this with you before. When 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 I order something at whatever it is, Starbucks, but the, that, there's a reason I have to use them as an example. Um, I have a, I, they like me. I'm small, black coffee. That's it. I don't want room for cream because I don't put cream in it. I don't want I don't want dolce whatchamacallit in it. I just want the coffee, <clears throat> hot and black. That's the size I want. My wife is much more sophisticated in her taste than I am. She's got all kinds of convolutions and ingredients and permutations and all these things in it. I mean, it's, it's, it's and, and I asked them one day, because she's not the only one. I said, how do you keep that straight? Because they don't write it down. And they said, it's very easy. We're trained how to listen to the, way, to the order that you give us. So no matter what order you give things in, we're trained first of all to... Li- and I'm not sure that I got this in the exact order. We're trained to listen to first of all the size. 
because they have three sizes. Next, we listen to whether it's regular coffee or decaffeinated. Next, we li- and then they go. They, they have an order that no matter what order it, you give it to them, in their mind they rearrange it into the order they've been trained to, 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 to process it in. And so by doing so, they get the order straight. That's what I want to accomplish with this study. Because I want to teach you that no matter what the real... See, the real-life situations don't come to you in a particular order. They don't come to you in elements so that you can recognize, ah, this is element A, this is element B, this is element C. It comes to you at your emotions. It comes to you from all kinds of angles because the devil's trying to confuse you and scare you so that you will not operate in faith. Instead, you'll react in panic. That's what he wants you to do. So I want to give you kind of a checklist to go through so that as you're going through this checklist, you can make sure that you are, that you are doing the basic things that, that, that faith requires you to do. Your trust isn't in this, but it's a checklist so that you can kind of go through. Oh, am I doing this? Okay, I need to make sure I'm doing this. Make sure I look for this. Make sure I do this. And then it'll get you on the right track. Does everybody understand? Yes, yes. All right, let's pray now. Father, we thank you for the Word of God that you've given to us. We thank you that you care for where each one of us is tonight, and you want to cause help us to grow and increase in faith. And so, Father, as we open up your Word right now and we looked at the teaching that you have put in my heart, help us to grasp and see and understand with clarity what your Word says, the instructions that you have for us as to how we are to walk in faith and not by sight. And for the grace to do that, we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, we're going to start in verse 17. But let me give you a little background here because the chapter obviously doesn't start in verse 17. Paul is here in the, begin, in the middle of a discussion about that our salvation in Christ is not based on keeping the law or performing good deeds or works. And chapter 1 goes through that, chapter 2 goes through that. The point of chapter 3 is that that what that means is the purpose of the law was to show every one of us that if by our own merits we fall woefully short. And that's where Paul says in there that we're all all sinners. We all fall short of the glory of God. And that's that's what qualifies us for His grace. You need His grace because you can't do it yourself. And now he goes on and teaches in chapter 3 the principle that we are justified or made right in God's eyes by faith in Christ. And so he establishes that very clearly through these first three chapters. Now he deals in the beginning of chapter 4 by comparing faith with the law, by saying that faith, the, the principle of faith was given to Abraham 400 and some years before the law was given to Moses. So faith, God's promise to justify us by faith, was given to Abraham 400 years before the law was given to Moses. And that's his point here. And then he goes on, having said that we're justified by faith, to give us an example in Abraham's life of what faith is. So this is an example of, from Paul's perspective of what faith is and how faith acts. And he's going to use Abraham as an example. So with that as background, let's look at what he says about Abraham here. He says some other things, but for our purposes, we're going to look at this. 
I'm going to read through it, then we're going to go back, and I've got a PowerPoint to show you a list of the, the major points. Verse, well, look at verse 16. Therefore it is of faith that it may be in accordance with grace. So we see that faith and grace come together. They're two parts of the same coin. Grace is God's, the attitude that God has by which He gives something. We talked about that on Sunday a little bit. Faith is what allows you to receive something that's been freely given. This is not really that difficult. It's only when we get into the realm of, of church. It's only when we get into the Bible that it becomes complicated. But you operate in this every day. You operate in every day. Somebody gives you something, you receive that by faith. You have to believe that they've given it to you. So if someone holds out to you a $5 bill and say, Joe, I just feel like I want to give this $5 bill to you. Well, you re- that's grace because you're not obligated to give it. Now, his employer says, I'm giving you this paycheck. That's not grace because the employer, his boss, is obligated to give it to him. So that's not grace. It's an obligation, which is what Paul talks about in the first part of chapter 4 here. But if instead the bo- bo- his boss comes up and says, you've done a great job, and here's your paycheck, but I just want to give you a bonus of $100. Somebody's into that already. <laughs> All right. There's a man of faith. <laughs> okay. Now, but he can't, won't receive that until he believes that his boss, first of all, has the money to give, and secondly, that he really means to give it to Joe. And once Joe believes that, that's the faith, then that allows him to receive the gift that his boss gave him. You understand how the two work together? So that's what Paul's saying here. It's by faith so that it may be given to us by grace. And we'll see why he wants to give it to us by grace. I've got to be real careful because I can get bogged down in this because this is so rich. So that the promise may be sure or certain to all the seed. In other words, God's done it this way so we can all get it. He's, doing, he's giving this our salvation to us by grace, received through faith, so that it can be available to all of us. That's God's heart. So that it's available to all. Under the law, it wasn't available to, it was available to all, but nobody could qualify. God's heart is that none of us fall short. God's heart that everyone is saved. That's why He did it this way. Not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. So now He's going to talk about Abraham and his faith. Verse 17, I'll read through here and then we'll go back over these elements. As it is written... I have made you a father of many nations in the presence of him in whom he believed God who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did, who contrary to hope, in hope, believed so that he might become the father of many nations according to what was spoken, so shall your descendants be. And not being weak in faith, he did not consider his own body already dead since he was about a hundred years old and the deadness of Sarah's womb. Yet he did not waver at the promise of, un- of God through unbelief, but he was to strengthen in faith, giving glory to God, being fully convinced that what he'd promised he was also able to perform. Therefore, it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now, it's not only written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, but also for us that it shall be imputed to us who believe in Him, who will raise up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. Now, as we read through that, it occurs to me, and this is important to understand, this is very important to learn these principles, 
not just so that you can have your needs met. Because what Paul is teaching here in many other places is that we are saved. We receive the grace, the gift of our salvation through what Christ did by faith in what Christ did. That means you're saved by operating in this faith in what Christ did. So we better know how it works because that's how we're saved also. It's not just how you get your needs met. It's not just how you, your, your next car comes or your next mortgage payment comes or you get a job. It's how you got saved also. So we better understand how it works. All right, does that have everybody's attention now? All right, so let's go back to verse 17. Because we're going to go through these in order because there is an order to them. So we have some slides here. If you put the first slide up. Uh, all right, it's okay. The first principle is this. It says, as it is written... Now, I'm, if, we're not, if I'm not reading my Bible, which is New King James, I'm going to speak it to you in New American Standard because I've read that so many times it's ingrained in me. So even when I read the New American Standard, New King James, it comes out NASB. So you'll just have to bear with me. As it is written... A father of many nations have I made you in the sight of God. So, here's the first point. In order to be operating in faith, you have to be putting your faith in something God said. Otherwise, you have no basis to believe that God's going to do something unless He's made a promise to you. So this is fundamental. Perhaps of, of this, all these things we're going to talk about, this is the most important. Because so many times people just jump out there and I say, and I'm in faith. In faith in what? I'm in faith. That's meaningless. Because faith automatically means I'm believing something God said. So you ought to be able to take me to the promise that you're believing God's made to you. Some of you have been helped already. The first thing you need to do when you have a need is get into that Bible and find a promise. How do I know God made it to me? Because it's in that book. Deuteronomy 29, verse 29, says that secret things belong to the Lord. In other words, there's things God knows, there's things God will do, that he, and, but He's not chosen to reveal them to us. That means not everything God knows is in this Bible. But the things revealed belong to us. In other words, what that verse says, if it's in there, it's yours. If it's in there, it's yours. That book is written to you. I sp- when I w- we were down in Mexico, I got off on this with those pastors, and I've shared this with you before. I said, I am absolutely convinced that this book is not just a history book. There is history in it. And here's why that's important to us. Because that means that the stories that are in here, the promises that are in here, are not just promises that God made to Abraham. Because if God only made the promise to Abraham, and He puts it in a book He's given to us, then it's a history book. That's like reading an American history book about the night that Washington crossed the Delaware with his troops. What meaning does that have to us? Nothing. Because it's an event that's already passed. It's over with. 
And the only significance that has to us is it was part of a series of events by which our nation won its independence. But it's not something we're going to relive again. Washington, you can't get in that boat and go out to the, to the Delaware River there and cross it with him because Washington's long gone, the boat's long gone, and the river's probably moved a little bit. So the only significance that that story has to us when you're reading a, an American history book is that it is part of something, a chain of events that led to the freedom that we enjoy today, but it's not something it's telling you you can do. That's because it's a history book. But that book has not been given to us. The book that's in your lap right now, the Bible, is more than a history book. And this is, this is I can't go over this enough with you. Because there's some of us that read that book and we say, well, that was good for them. But if it was just good for them, it's a history book. Like saying that boat was good for Washington on that cold December night. But when God made a promise to Abraham, and I can show you scriptures to prove it for Abraham's promise, He made it to you also. So if there's a promise that's in that book, unless there's a limitation on it, and some of them there are conditions on it, and some of them are limitations, but if there's no limitation, it's yours. It's a promise made to you. Say, but how am I going to find what those promises are? Well, that makes it incumbent on you to spend some time in there finding out what they are. But we have a bookstore that's full of books to help you. There are even books that even contain promises. My Bible has a section in the back. If you've got this need, here's a bunch of scriptures. If you've got this need, here's a bunch of scriptures. There is no excuse in this day and age to not be able to find a promise that meets your situation. No excuse. Because there's too many resources available to you. So the first thing is you need to find the promise that you're going to put your trust in. Now, let's, we're going to keep that same thing up there. Now, let's go back and look at the promise that God made to Abraham. So keep your something here on Romans chapter 4, and let's go back to Genesis 15. I want to show you what Paul's talking about. Genesis 15, 1. After these things, we're not going to talk about what those were right now. The word of the Lord came to Abram. The what came to Abram? The, the what came to him? The what? the what? The word. God spoke to him. God spoke to him. The word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield and your exceeding great reward. But Abraham said, Lord, what will you give me, seeing that I go childless? And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And then Abraham said, Look, you've given me no offspring. Indeed, no one born of my house, one born in my house who was a slave, is my heir. Behold, the word of the Lord. The what? The word of the Lord came to him, saying, This is the promise. This one shall not be your heir, but one who will come from your own body shall be your heir air. And then he brought him outside and said, look now towards heaven and count the stars if you're able to number them. And he said to them, so shall your descendants be. And he, Abraham, believed in the Lord and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now go over to chapter 17. This is years later. Verse 1, now Abram was 99 years old 
And the Lord appeared to Abram and said, and what? And what? He spoke to him. He gave a word to him, a promise to him. I am Almighty God. Walk before me and be blameless, and I will make my covenant between me and you and will multiply you exceedingly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God talked with him, saying, As for me, from my side, you shall be a father of many nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham, for I have made you a father of many nations. Now let me ask you a question. At this point in time, could Abram get up from the ground and when the Lord left and go into his tent and put his hand on his son? No. Could he see a little boy that he could say, this is my son? He couldn't see anything with his natural eyes because Sarah had not yet conceived nor born a child. She was barren. And then he's 99 years old and she's 89 years old. But what does he have? God has said. God has made a promise to Abram saying, as far as I'm concerned, I have already made you a father of many nations. And that's now Abram has something he can put his faith in. And you need to begin with that same first step. When you have a need in your life, whatever it may be, you need to get into this book and find out a promise God has made to you. And then you're in the exact same position that Abraham was in. Because if God made a promise to Abraham, and He's made a promise to you, as long as you do what Abraham did, you'll get the same results that Abraham did. So the first step is you've got to be able to identify what promise you're believing. Because all faith... Is, I'm just going to give you a, a, the cliff notes on it, the shortcut on it. Remember what cliff notes are? Is All faith is, is taking God at His word no matter what you see. It's taking God at His what? That is what? So you have to have the word that you can take him at. Because without that, your faith is in something he didn't say. The other reason it's important is because we always have to deal with this issue, well, I don't know if it's God's will or not. And of course, you know, many of us are raised in churches where that's how you ended your prayer. Because that's a safe, that's a safe thing. Lord, you know, I ask you for this, this, if it be your will. See, what that does is that takes all the responsibility off of me and puts it on God, but it's not scriptural. I don't ever find Jesus doing that except one time. And in that one prayer, he was not asking for something from God other than if there was some other way that God could bring our salvation to us other than Jesus going to the cross. And that's when he says, nevertheless, not my will, but your will. It's a prayer of consecration. It's where you take what you want and you surrender what you want to what God wants. That's a very different prayer than a prayer of petition where you're asking God for something, where you're taking a promise and you're standing on it. Because here's the other reason that's important. Because when you have God's promise, you have His will. 
If God's made a promise to you, you know it's His will. But I don't know if it's for me. Then He should have said in the Word, it wasn't for you. That's His job. But this is a wonderful way. That, see, we like to, we like to, we like to um, hedge things. They have what? Hedge funds? Link? Hedge funds where you kind of make, you know, make sure you come out all right anyway. You take both sides of a transaction or something like that. We like to do that because we, we, we want something, but we don't want to go all the way and put ourselves out on the limb in case it doesn't happen. So we want to make sure there's a little bridge back here. So we say, well, I guess it wasn't God's will. No, I've got a responsibility to get into the book and find out what God's will is. So if it's a promise He made to me, then I know it's His will. So go back and look at how Jesus prayed. Go back and look at how Jesus prayed. He had confidence, didn't He? In fact, what He said in John chapter 11 is, Father, I know You always hear me. I know You always hear me. But just so they'll know You did this and not me, I'm talking to you in front of them. And then he talked to Lazarus and told him to come forth. Jesus had confidence that he knew his Father's will, but he always prayed in accordance with the Word. In fact, he quoted. That's the best way to pray is to take the promise and quote it back to God. See, that's the lawyer in me. I'll take a case and argue it back to him. You said so right here. See, I would do that with a judge. The law, you do it respectfully. Say, Your Honor, I don't, you know... I know you may have your own opinion, but the law says you've got to do this. Regardless of what you want to do, the law says you've got to do this. And you've got every right to take that book with that promise and hold it up to Him. It pleases Him. And say, you've said this. You've said this. You've said this. Now, I'm expecting you to do that. So that's arrogant. No, He said to come and argue with me. He wants you to do this. That's faith. It's not faith that says, well, I know your word says it, God, but I don't know if you really want to. I don't know if I'm worthy. I don't know, you know, it may not be a good time. It may not be your will. Maybe it's going to hurt me. All these things are ways of of hedging and couching things so that I don't ever come right out to that line and step out on that faith. But faith doesn't hide back here, afraid it's not going to happen. Faith steps out saying, I know it's going to happen. So the beginning is to be able to identify the promise. The beginning is to be able to identify the promise. Put the next one up. The second thing is to know the one who made the promise. See, it's one thing to have somebody's word, but whether they're going to come through depends on whether you can trust their word. Two things about them. First of all, you have to know whether you can trust their word, whether they mean what they say. But you can have people that mean what they say. They speak their promise out of the best of intentions, but they don't have the ability to come through so they mean well they want to help you but they just don't have the means they really want to help you say you know I'm going to help you come up with that money somehow but they don't have enough money themselves so the first reason you need to know who made the promise because the promise isn't any more any, any more valid than the person that made it the promise is no more substantial no more reliable than the one who made it so you've got to know something about the one who made it, for, for two reasons. First of all, you've got to know whether you can trust their word. Secondly, even if you can trust their word, they may not have the ability to follow through on it. Well, what is it we know about God? Well, we know Numbers twenty three nineteen tells us God is not a man that he should lie. 
God's not a man. And I don't, I don't want to take the time tonight to go through that whole discussion we've done before, that everything you know about trusting people's words has come from your experience with people, men. And so the beginning of this first tells, throw all that out when it comes to God, because God's not one of them. God's not a man that he should lie. Neither is he the son of man, which is another way of saying the same thing, that he should repent. That means change his mind. So God, when he says something, not, see, when God says something, see, when you say something's going to happen, you're predicting that it's going to happen. To the best of your ability, I'll be there Saturday at noon to help you. you know, to the best of my ability, I'm going to be there at 8 o'clock on Saturday morning for the women's meeting. I'm talking to the women now, not the men. All right? But something may come up. I mean, you called into work that day and you can't do it. That was your best intention, but you couldn't do it. So you're predicting what you're going to do. But God doesn't predict anything. His words make them happen. When God said, let there be light, He didn't predict that light was going to show up. Light showed up because He said, let there be light. And Hebrews tells us that light's still out there and the stars are still out there because of the power of that word that just said, let there be. So God's words, that's where His words are different than ours. Our words predict what's going to happen. Like the weatherman. We won't go there. God doesn't predict anything. He decrees it. It happens because He said so. Now let's look at the rest of what Paul... Go back to Romans 4. Because this is in here. As it is written, The Father of many nations have I made you in the presence or the sight of Him whom He believed. So now Paul is going to talk about who made the promise to God, to, to, to Abraham. Even God. So he's saying God's the one that made the promise. Now what do we know about God? What did Abraham know about God? It's what it says in here. Who raises the dead. So there's the question of whether God can come through on the promise or not. This is a God who has the power to raise the dead. Now let's think about that in terms of our own human experience. Oh my goodness. Let's think in terms of our own human experience. With our experience, let's talk about a medical situation. Doctors work with them, they work with them, and work with them as long as they're breathing, there's hope. But once they breathe their last breath and that life comes out of them, in terms of medical science, all hope is gone. So to, for, for, for someone to die is the end of all natural ability to do something for that person, for their life. But what this says is with God, that, that, that which is too late to us isn't too late to Him. See, the, the boundaries that limit us don't limit God. Death doesn't limit God. Ask Jairus. He'll bring his daughter out to you. Because on the way to heal her, Jesus gets a report, it's too, it's too late. See, in human terms, it was, it's too late. So don't bother the Master anymore. That's religion. Jesus turns to Jairus, and I, it doesn't say this in the Scripture, and Pastor Ray, I've talked about this, but I get this picture of him grabbing Jairus by the robe and saying, Fear not, only believe. In other words, Jairus, I don't care what they say, it's too late, but dead's not too late for me. Why? Because I am the resurrection and I am the life. So this is the God that made the promise to Abram 
that through your own body and Sarah's body, you're going to have a son. Because I promised it, and that's the only reason. So, so the one in whom he believed can raise the dead. So he's got some power. But he takes it a step further. He says, not only can he raise the dead, but he calls things into being that have never existed before. It's one thing to take something that's already existed and has died and call it back to life with your words. It's another thing to come over here where something never existed and you just your words are so powerful, you speak it into existence. I want you to get this. That's the power of this God's words. And what has this God done with His words? He's made you a promise with those same words. And the same power that raised Lazarus from the dead, the same power that hung the stars in the sky and still holds them there, that same power is behind the promise that God made to you to carry that promise out. Which is why Jesus in Mark 11 teaching them out of the story of the fig tree, the first thing he says to them in verse 22 is, have faith in God. So the first thing you've got to do is locate, identify what is the promise that I'm believing. What promise has God made to me that I'm going to take him at his word about? And then you need to meditate. The second one is so important because we think we know that. But I just spent about five minutes with you meditating out loud, which is what I'll do on on, on who God is. I'll take a promise like that, and I'll talk to myself this way. I'll say, this God that made this promise to me has raised the dead. The God that made this promise to me, the power that created this universe is behind this promise to me. Things cannot resist. The only thing that can resist the power of God's Word is man. Nothing else can resist it. When Jesus spoke to the storms, what did they do? They obeyed Him. When He told a man He could walk on water, what happened? He walked on water. When He spoke to Lazarus, what happened? He came out. You read that story carefully. It says He came out bound hand and foot. That means He came out still bound up. He didn't walk out of the grave. He was brought out of the grave. Oh, that's hard to do. Well, is that any harder than raising Him from the dead to begin with? (laughs) See, we think in natural terms... God's power is absolute. We think, well, this may be hard for God. Hard's not in his vocabulary. He doesn't have a concept of hard. When everything you say just happens, oh, we have to end here.